It's Thursday, September 17th in Los Angeles. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this is The Daily Dive. Two L.A. County Sheriff's deputies cling to life in critical condition after being ambushed while in their SUV at a Compton Metro stop, to which Sheriff Alex Villanueva called out Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James to pitch in monetarily to the reward to find the assailant. KFI AM640 Los Angeles reporter Steve Gregory will bring us up to date. Then, the main super spreader wedding has now been linked to more than 170 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and seven deaths. And get this, most diagnosed weren't even at the wedding, and those numbers may not even be the final tally. We'll get a sense of both the medical community response and larger general civic reaction from NBC breaking news reporter Mignon Burke. And finally, as a companion story, nurses across the country have been dying from COVID-19 due to their profession's inherent dangers. We'll discuss the strain this has put on hospitals and the protections put in place to guard hospital staff at all levels with Christina Jewett, Senior Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. At the Compton Terminal of the Blue Line, the MTA Blue Line, there was uh, two deputies who were ambushed by a gunman in a cowardly fashion. Joining me now is Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles. Steve, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Let's start at the beginning. Everyone by now, I assume, has seen that disturbing video of what seemed to be a minor walking up to the sheriff's deputy's SUV and firing multiple times into the vehicle. We know that both of the deputies are still alive, but there's not a lot of information regarding their status. What can you tell us at this point? Well, as of Wednesday afternoon, Mo, both deputies are in an ICU unit. They're critical but stable. Both sustained multiple gunshot wounds. And you're right. When that video came out of this shooter on Saturday night in the city of Compton, it was assumed that this was a minor or teenager, someone young. At one point, they even thought it was a woman because of the way the hair was and the way the gait, the walk was. But deputies and investigators have now sort of modified their description. They say they're looking for a black male, 28 to 30 years old, wearing dark clothing, and was last seen driving northbound away from that train station. And that description is now the only thing they've got to go on. Moving forward, there has been a GoFundMe, if you will, to raise money for the deputies. Sheriff Villanueva has specifically made a plea to LeBron James of the Los Angeles Lakers to pitch in another $100,000. From your reporting, do you know why the sheriff has invoked LeBron James in this situation? LeBron has made comments on social media about policing. He had made comments in support of Black Lives Matter and in promoting justice. And he had also made some disparaging comments about law enforcement. And the sheriff, while he didn't give specific examples of what prompted him to do that, he had said in an interview that he wanted LeBron James to, in essence, put his money where his mouth is. If he wanted to be a part of the solution and not the problem, and if he really supported law enforcement, as he had mentioned he had did earlier, that maybe perhaps he should match the reward, which at the time had been $100,000 offered by the county of Los Angeles. And then he had pretty much put LeBron James to the challenge, to the task of matching that 100000 to make it 200000 But now, from what I understand as of Wednesday afternoon, it is well into 300000 
from where I was sitting, it seemed more a dare than a request. Has there been any response from LeBron James as far as either meeting with the sheriff or discussing how he might be able to be involved and also an asset to the investigation? No, you know, and that's interesting because he has made no comment. LeBron James has made nothing public about that challenge. His people have not responded to requests from multiple media outlets to give a statement or to respond or react to the sheriff's comments. So at this point, unless LeBron James comes out and says one thing or another, I guess we're just going to kind of wait and see. We'd have to kind of sit on the edge of our seats, as it were, to see if LeBron is going to actually respond to this. There have been other disturbing videos around the subsequent events. I saw a video in which there were some protesters chanting something to the effect of, we hope they die or something like that. And that received all sorts of tremendous negative pushback, as I think it should. How has the community writ large responded to these shootings? Well, the community at large, Mo, has denounced the shooting, denounced the violence. But you're right. I was actually there that night at St. Francis Medical Center in the city of Linwood. I was there, watched the protest. At its peak, there were 40 to 50 people there. Not all of them were chanting, like you say, the hope and the wish that the deputies would die, because at that point they were both in surgery. But there was a small, there was a handful of them that were chanting it loud enough to where all the deputies that were there could hear it clearly. The media could hear it. And that started causing us quite a bit of backlash because regardless if you are really anti-cop or anti-law enforcement right now, I don't think anyone was anti-life. I don't think anyone was kind of wishing the death upon those deputies. But that handful really sparked a lot of emotion that night, not only on the part of the deputies and the department, but I think the community at large was taken aback by the fact that people now, it's become so magnified. This division between law enforcement and community has become so magnified now that this toxic response has really shaken the community. The ambush of the deputies comes on the heels of a quote-unquote controversial shooting. And I say quote-unquote because some find it as controversial, some have not. The shooting and killing of Dijon Kizzi about four miles from the location of where the deputies were ambushed. Has there been any reporting or information which either connects these two events or suggests that one, the ambush of the deputies was in retaliation for that shooting? At this point, Mo, the motive is unclear and it's speculative at best, but there were some theories being floated around by members of law enforcement community, including some detectives. One, that it was a gang initiation of some kind because of how nervous the individual in the video looked and that that perhaps there was some sort of a gang initiation tied to it or a gang debt to be paid off. There had also been the theory floated around that this was somehow designed to put a further wedge between law enforcement and communities of color. And then there was just a flat-out theory that this was in direct retaliation for the shooting of Dijon Kizzi, as you mentioned earlier, which had just happened just a few weeks prior to this shooting. So of those four theories, it's got to be one of those. There have been almost nightly protests in regard to the Kizzi shooting. How have those protests progressed? Have they become more plentiful in nature around the city, or have they stayed close to the location of the shooting? You know what? It's a mixture of both. There are still pockets of protests going on all around the Southland, all around the Los Angeles area, into Beverly Hills, into Hollywood, into Torrance, into Long Beach. Uh, And these are mostly protests against police in general, defund the police and that narrative. Then there is the protests that happen down in the South L.A. area, the Compton area, the Linwood area. And these are usually people that gather either at the site of the shooting 
or in front of this sheriff station, which is the substation down there in the South LA area. So it seems to be a mixture of both. And they're not that frequent. Every couple days, usually on the weekend, and it's really no more than 100, maybe 150 people. Before I let you go, let me ask you this about local leadership. Has the mayor of Los Angeles or any other local leaders offered any voice or perspective as far as how the city should conduct itself or offering any type of plan to ensure that the calm is preserved? It's interesting because the mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti, Eric Garcetti, he made a comment on a national news network that really sparked some controversy and some outrage because he sort of downplayed it. And I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. And and, and I'm sorry, his words escaped me at this moment. But the one that really jumped out at me is the chairperson of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, Catherine Barker. When she came out the other day in what was supposed to be just a regular update on COVID-19, but she took that opportunity to say that this anti-police, anti-law enforcement rhetoric has got to stop. She called out elected officials and community leaders by name, and said that their continued lecturing and spouting of hateful words is causing a toxic environment. So that's the first time I had heard an elected official sort of go against what the common narrative is right now. And she really came out and she was visibly upset. And she said that coming off of the shooting of the two deputies, that this anti-police, anti-law enforcement rhetoric has got to stop. It's causing more division than it should. He is Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI AM 640 here in Los Angeles. Steve, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mo. You take care. People who were celebrating one of life's major milestones and are now contending with the anxiety that comes with COVID-19. Joining us now is Mignon Burke, breaking news reporter for NBC Ms. Burke, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, but it distresses me when I see a story about a main wedding, which has been connected to more than 100 cases of COVID-19 and seven deaths. How is this story mm-hmm. playing out on the East Coast? I think it's just as disturbing over here. It's definitely shocking to see so many cases arise from what's supposed to be a happy occasion. But yeah, like you said, there's been 176 positive cases from this, seven deaths. And what's interesting is that the people who have died weren't at the wedding. They contracted COVID-19 secondary through someone else who was at the wedding, which is all interesting and a bit crazy. That highlights my point when I say on the East Coast, because when we're discussing COVID-19, we can't talk about it within a small geographic location. Although this wedding was in Maine, you highlight the point that these were secondary contacts. Do we know a range of spread and infected at this point in a geographic sense? I think that's still being investigated. The main Center for Disease Control and Prevention is tackling this. And they've been doing a couple press conferences on this. They did one on Tuesday. And um, I think they're still trying to figure out how far this has spread. But they already know that there's a couple of smaller outbreaks just from this one wedding. Do we know at this point whether this wedding has impacted public policy or any type of restrictions on gatherings in Maine? I'm not sure if it has at this point, but I think it's interesting if that does happen down the road. 
I know that Maine already has some restrictions in place, just like many other states across the country to kind of prevent COVID and slow down the spread. But at this point, I don't think anything has changed as far as if the governor is going to um, make any new adjustments from this wedding, at least not yet. Sometimes I believe we might be inundated with these stories and we may be numb to a certain degree, but there are certain stories which may break through. Has this been a Mm -hmm. story which has broken through and really touched the public's conscience or has it been just another story for those on the eastern seaboard? I think this one is a little different because so many people can relate to it. I think the fact that this couple, they wanted to have their wedding, they wanted to celebrate their union and gather family or friends together, which many couples across the country want to do, but they either had to postpone their weddings or scale down to a much smaller uh, version or sometimes cancel their weddings altogether. So I think people can sympathize with the couple and that you want to get together and celebrate this. But also you have to keep in mind that we're still in the midst of this pandemic. COVID-19 hasn't gone anywhere yet. It's still around. It's still spreading. And I think that's one of the reasons why this story has started to get so much attention because there's a lot that you can relate to. And not just with the wedding, but with the people who attended the wedding and how it's spreading to different areas. And I think there's just a lot of elements to this story that are grabbing people's attention. Do we know how large a wedding it was? So the main CDC said that about 65 people attended. And in the state of Maine right now for indoor gatherings, it's up to 50 people and outdoor. I believe it's up to 100 or fewer, depending on the state. So again, they're still looking into whether the wedding and the reception were both indoors or outdoors. But so far, they said it's been about 65 people who were at the ceremony. Let me leave you with this. Has there been any statement by the family or any expression regarding what has happened or condolences for the family, for the people impacted by the family specifically? Not that I have seen. And I don't even think the name of the couple has been released by any health officials. Um, And the family themselves, they haven't come out publicly and said anything. She is Mignon Burke, breaking news reporter for NBC. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. I mean, I've been talking to nurses for months now, and they have a number of concerns. A lot of them have said they're not told who among their colleagues and patients has COVID. A lot of hospitals are actually mixing COVID patients into sort of the general patient population. And they're also being asked to reuse PPE that six months ago, they would have been written up or fired for reusing PPE in the ways that they're required to right now. Joining us now is Christina Jewett, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Appreciate it. In my conversations with various nurses in different capacities within the hospital system to a person, female, male, cardiac care, ICU, every single one, and I know this is anecdotal, but just for me, every single one is actively concerned about catching COVID-19, infecting relatives, or dying on the job. Is this fear nationwide from what you see? As far as I can tell, it is coast to coast 
a problem. I mean, I've been talking to nurses for months now, and they have a number of concerns. A lot of them have said they're not told who among their colleagues and patients has COVID. A lot of hospitals are actually mixing COVID patients into sort of the general patient population. And they're also being asked to reuse PPE that six months ago, they would have been written up or fired for reusing PPE in the ways that they're required to right now. So there is high concern among nurses that I've talked to as well. I know that there might be HIPAA concerns involved with not knowing which of someone's colleagues may have tested for COVID-19. But is there any way from where you sit where nurses or other medical professionals can be alerted if someone within their ward or someone on their floor might have tested positive? Well, there is contact tracing. I mean, there is a nationwide push inside hospitals and health facilities and also on the county health department level to alert people if they've been exposed and try to find out who they've been in touch with. So you'd expect this to be going on in hospitals, but it's not, you know, really uniform how it's being done, when and where it's being done. I've talked to nurses who had to really do their own legwork to find out, you know, sometimes they were told just sort of vaguely they were exposed and had to figure out what happened and which patient was it and how much contact they had with that patient. So there's a wide range of concerns among the healthcare workers we've been talking to. You made mention of PPE and having to reuse it many times. Medical professionals have to reuse it. We're a good seven, seven and a half months in this COVID-19 crisis here in America. What policies or practices to your mind have been changed or improved to better protect nurses and other medical professionals? From what I've heard, the supply chain problems are improving a little bit. There are efforts to conserve PPE and a lot of that involves disinfecting sort of the N95 respirators. And I have heard concerns about that because there's a variety of ways that that happens, some with chemicals, some with UV light, and there are sort of different benefits and drawbacks to those processes. And I've talked to nurses who feel like they're sort of being experimented on in real time. Let's try this method and sort of see how it works. And the nurses who feel like they're going to stay healthy or not, depending on, on some of those processes. So the PPE situation, I think, is getting better, but I think the reuse is still pretty widespread. When I began my conversation with you, we were talking more on a micro level, in other words, on a person-to-person level, on a nurse-to-nurse level and their concerns. On a macro level within the industry, is there a shortage of just nursing staff or is it trending in that direction as it is more and more difficult to either find enough support staff or nurses to cover all these shifts given the increase in workload? Well, I know staffing companies have seen big upticks in demand during the surges and sort of the places and times when cases were really on the rise. And I've also heard anecdotally that nurses are in some places leaving the profession and, of course, they're dying. You know, as far as the national shortage, I don't know if that's the case. I haven't, you know, really heard that. But I know there's concern that there could be a second wave in the fall and that gives sort of hospitals and nursing homes all that more incentive to really sort of try to take care of their staff, keep them as safe as they can, and get them some rest. Christina Jewett, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Christina, thank you again for coming on today. All right. I appreciate it. You take care. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories you are interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe where you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Mo Kelly in for Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.